It's Monday, May 21st, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 161 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? Thank you for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. Today, that musician is legend, legend, legend of, of free music, Dave Burrell. This week at the Vision Festival, Dave Burrell is being honored for uh, a lifetime of incredible work. And it seemed like a good time to have him over and, and talk about a bunch of things. And today's a really good one. Today on the show, Dave Burrell. Before we get into it, um, <clears throat> there's a bit of business to discuss, uh, a lot of business. One week from today, May 28th, the very first live 5049 podcast taping. It's happening in Brooklyn at the venue Arate. My good friend Toby Driver is going to do a set of his new music. And then afterwards, he and I are going to talk. And uh, if you're around, come out. It's 20 bucks at the door. It's a full evening. And I think it's going to be really fun. Big announcement. Uh, July 13th, my next record's coming out. It's called Decay of the Angel. It's a solo record. It's the first solo record um, that I've done since 2012. And I'm really, really proud of this. I've spent the last year working on it, and um, it's, it, it's taken a shape that I, I never, uh, I, I certainly didn't see coming. I haven't put out a record in a couple of years. Last record I put out was in 2016, and and you know to be honest, a lot of that has been uh, a growth period, a growth period that I didn't necessarily feel needed to be documented until now. I've got this record coming out July 13th. Um, <clears throat> it's a really exciting package that I'm putting together. There's a beautiful painting by this artist B. Kwan Lim in San Francisco, whose work I've adored forever. Peter Evans, the great, the great Peter is doing liner notes. Um, it's it's a special package, and I'm raising money to put it out. Kickstarter. Right now, if you want to help out, go to the 5049 website. There's a link right up front to the Kickstarter. Uh, you'll get the record early. There's uh, some special incentives, including uh, prints of the artwork. And when you see the artwork, you will understand why you want a copy of this print. Do that. July 13th, Decay of the Angel. Ne on next week's show, I'll play a track from it. Um, but I'm really excited about it. And, and if you have time, if you have the interest, check it out. Go to the Kickstarter. Throw in a few bucks. You'll get the record early. And that's that. Dave Burrell is on the show today. What you know about Dave Burrell? He's been around a long time. Uh, he was born he was born in the the, the lower forty eight states, uh, but he grew up in Hawaii, which I don't know if I know anyone who grew up in Hawaii, especially not an African American growing up in the forties and fifties. He came over my house uh, about a month ago for this conversation, and I have to say this is one of my favorite conversations in the whole series. I really, really like Dave Burrell a lot. You know, as as a, a, a sideman, as a musician, he, you know, he's been there and worked with everyone. Farrell Sanders, Archie Shepp, Marion Brown, 
found out on today's show that he also worked with Lenny Bruce. And we talk about that. Lenny Bruce. Just think of it. One thing I have to warn you about today's show, and I'm upset about this, is at the start of our conversation, Dave's mic cut out for a couple of minutes before I noticed and, and fixed it. Um, so you'll hear in the first couple of minutes kind of a weird transition of us talking. And I hate that you miss it because Dave told me this just this thing that I found to be incredible, talking about hanging around Coltrane and, and Pharaoh and because, you know, all the young musicians saw those guys juicing, you know, fruits and vegetables into a juicer, they all started juicing. And and it was just this, this to me, a very hilarious aside. Dave and I cover a lot of ground today. And the reason I'm putting this up, as I, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is that this week, the 23rd annual Vision Festival is happening in New York. Starts on Wednesday. And as they've been doing for the past uh, several years, they are honoring a musician for a lifetime of work. And this year they've chosen Dave Burrell as that musician. And it's exciting. The Vision Festival is always exciting. The Vision Festival is such an important part of the fabric of New York music. You know, there's all these different scenes, you know, jazz and experimental and improvise and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and you know, to me, to what I want this podcast to represent is the Venn diagram where all that stuff kind of comes into contact with each other. And Vision Festival is just such a central part of it. And it's one of those things that, you know, may, to me, it's it's like a real New York thing. It makes New York New York. Uh as I'm sure you know, anyone who listens to this show knows, I love New York. My love affair with New York continues despite a lot of changes that I'm not so you know thrilled about. And to me, the Vision Festival is as New York as a walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, or or a visit to the Cloisters, or you know, a lunch at Russ and Daughters. It's just it's it, it it's part of the fabric, and I can't think of a better musician for them to honor. Last year, it was Cooper Moore. This year, it's Dave Burrell. And if you're in New York, if you're around New York, it's starting this Wednesday night. It's happening at Roulette. And there is just an insane amount of, of great music that's going to be happening. Archie Shep is playing. Dave's going to be doing a couple concerts. Uh, Mary Halverson, Roscoe Mitchell, uh, Daniel Carter, Matt Ship. And the sheet waits like the list goes on and on and on and on. It's going to be a really special uh, uh, couple of days of music. If you want to find out more about the Vision Festival, go to artsforart.org. Check it out. Um, they're doing a great thing. They continue to do a great thing. They've been doing a great thing. Artsforart.org. If you want to find out more about Dave Burrell, go to daveburrell.com. Uh, I, I, I can't underline it enough what a treasure uh, he is as a, as a musician. And as you'll hear in today's conversation, as, as an oracle, you know, he, he's been there. You know, we start the conversation. You'll hear in a second. We start the conversation talking about slugs, the venue in the, in the Lower East Side where, you know, Eiler would play. It was the venue where, uh, where Lee Morgan got shot. I mean, this guy was there for it all. You know, you got to treasure those people. And, and if you have the opportunity to, to document their stories, this is what you do. 
Go to DaveBurrell.com. And that's it. Uh, I hope you guys are all doing well. Go down to the Vision Festival. Come out to the concert at Arate next week and, and, and pledge to my record. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dave Burrell. Said it's tight, crazy right here. <laughs> Sticky tea right here. This is, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. recording space. Good, yeah. 2018. Good. So, you, yeah. I didn't realize that you lived in the Lower, Lower East Side of East Village. Yeah, I came from Boston, uh, Berkeley. Uh huh. Um, after four years down to the East Village. What year was that? That was 1965, August. So I have to imagine that Slugs on 3rd Street was going pretty strong. It, it was, yeah. And I did meet Jerry Schultz in person later him. in Paris. Really? Right. You're talking about the owner of the club, the right? The owner, yes. I met him two years ago. Oh, cool. He's still around, huh? I mean, he's yeah. pretty out to lunch, but he's still oh, around. Oh, yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. I, I, I met him at a restaurant, hmm. and he started talking about, oh, I used to own a jazz club, and I thought he was just some uh, nut, you know? Oh, sure. But yeah. then he's like, yeah, it was called Slugs. You ever heard yeah. of Albert Eiler? I said, what? Yeah, wow, wow. <laughs> That's beautiful, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the East Village at that time was, hmm. what was it like? It was uh, very, very uh, aggressively artistic with the painters and the musicians and the old-timers that had been living there since the 40s and 50s, yeah. some of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the the clash, sometimes it was a clash between the uh, the veteran Lower East Siders and the artists uh-huh. types. But uh, basically what happened was everybody respected each other and they learned to like and live with the music. Because mm-hmm. um, my place on East 3rd was um, having um, bathtubs in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. It was an old tenement and, building. Yeah, yeah. and uh, $40 a month. That's <laughs> not bad. We all had to copy. copy. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you guys got into juicing because those guys. Yeah, yeah. Those guys were, were the heroes back then, weren't they? They were big heroes, and and uh, Pharaoh was already working with John, and and he'd come o- over, and I'd say, "What are you guys doing?" And that was one of the things that they were doing. Juicing, together. juicing, yeah. I mean, juicing. You know, of of all the health fads that come and go, that's one that's proven to be pretty beneficial. And uh, oh, sure. Did you like the taste of it? I, I did because it made my eyes relax, and I was so into reading music. Right. Uh, and I needed something like that. I still remember my first sip of carrot juice. Oh, sure. I hated it. Oh, you I think I still get, do. get into it. Huh? Nah, no, you know, no. of all that stuff. like. Uh, yeah, well, we branched out. You know, kale? Into, uh, ev- even uh, onions. Oh, man, you got... <laughs> <laughs> We had to take it to the max, right? Did you? But you, with the onions, you must have said, "Okay, enough's enough. Let's dial yeah, it back to yeah. apples." And- yeah. After, after a while, you know, as more more folks came over, Pharaoh was first over. He seems like he'd be like really intense into pushing the juice as far uh, as yeah. He he was already 
going to uh, Japan and c- coming back with new Yamaha instruments. And oh, I wow. said, let me try the, um, the, the alto flute and let me try this alto sax. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you played on Tauhid, right? I did. Uh-huh. How yeah. did you first encounter Pharaoh? I, um, I think probably Slugs out front. Yeah. You know, um, everybody knew that we had just hit town. And we being me, uh, Bobby Cap uh, uh-huh. from uh, New Brunswick. He was uh, at Berkeley with me, um, and at that time it was also Sonny Chirac. You guys all came in at the same time from Boston. Uh, uh, yeah, and if we didn't, even Ted Daniel, he came in. He was at Berkeley for a little while. Then he went somewhere in Illinois. Uh-huh. Uh But he went because he was in Vietnam. Really? Uh, during, yeah, during maybe three years. So mm. we all knew when we were coming to New York, hey, we're going to meet on the Lower East Side. And so uh, it was kind of the place where you did your business. Yeah, out, out you, you knew that before moving to New York that the Lower East Side was going to be an important place for you? Sure. And was that because of Slugs or just because of... Uh, because uh, Slugs was the only place where you really felt you could just relax and maybe uh, uh, play and see everyone from, say, the Baroness and Philly Joe to mm-hmm. Coltrane and uh, Red Garland. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, Ornette, they bump up the door when Ornette was playing there. Yeah. And uh, so it, it became sort of central to, yeah. to um, <clears throat> the hang. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And like you said, people would be out front. Yeah, all the time sex. Out, out front, and you'd see the Baroness's Bentley. Really? And a say, Bentley? Yeah, uh, uh, an- antique Bentley. And that's where I met. Um, that's where I met Alan Douglas because uh-huh. they had just done the Three Blind Mice series, Three Blind Mice with uh, <clears throat> uh, Art Blakey. Yeah. And then he had done uh, uh, Money Jungle with Max Mingus and Duke. Uh, he yeah. started his own label mm-hmm. and put my West Side Story, my my version of West Side Story, of Leonard Bernstein's, and uh, he actually tried Alan Douglas to get Bernstein to uh, come by the the house, mm-hmm. come by the pad. Who were you living alone, or you had a guy? I I was living alone. I <clears throat> I had uh, a a kind of a. Um, a well, uh, a girlfriend that lived in Harlem, and uh, I was very much into the clique that I was in. Yeah. And that clique was broken up by Marion Brown, I think, first. Uh, I had. Uh, How do you mean? Uh, you know, when say when when I went with Marion on Fontana, that was my first recording. Yeah. So I was with uh, Benny Maupin and uh, uh, the the brother of um, uh, Wayne Shorter, Alan Shorter, uh-huh. uh, Gracia Marco the Third, trombone, and Andrew Surreal. That's so the 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 song that Marion featured me on was called um, "The Visitor," and mm-hmm. uh, the visitor on that label was um, some kind of um, an eye-opener for me because 
I came with the idea of playing inside and maybe a little bit of outside, and that uh, being the actual visitor uh, in Brown's concept made me play free for 20 minutes. But you hadn't thought about that before? I had never had an opportunity like that yeah. with an actual visual from the title mm -hmm. that said, hey, you know, you're going to, in my mind, you're going to have this trench coat pulled up, <laughs> the collar's going to be up, yeah. and your hat's going to be down like a gangster or a spy, uh -huh. and you're going to knock on the door, and then when you get in there, the background music of all of these guys playing was very dark and um, eerie. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was my first day. You know? It was your first day. Yeah. And I, I, I yeah. take it at Berkeley you weren't learning the kind of skills to deal no, with that? No, that, that was kind of after-hour stuff yeah. at, Ber at Berkeley. Yeah. Was but, it, when I mean, were you familiar with Marion's work? Was he someone that you looked to as with admiration? Yeah, I did look to him because he had done his thesis at Howard uh, uh, on um, uh, Ornette Coleman. Mm. And so he had this um, air about him of uh, being a, an elder, if it was only slightly. Yeah. And he was on the couch at Archie Shep's house, and Leroy Jones, then Leroy Jones, then Amiri Baraka later, was yeah, was downstairs mm -hmm. uh, writing plays like uh, uh, Slave Ship, and and uh, so it was kind of the nucleus over there on. 27th Cooper Square mm -hmm. and needed somebody to broadcast that the new cats that just came from Boston mm -hmm. were around too. And uh, everybody started using us when they had something because mm -hmm. nobody had anything steady. Right. Everyone was just mm -hmm. putting together what they could. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Did, did, um, th so this would have been what, like 65 or so? Uh, by the time I was, uh, did the, the date with Marion, I think it was 66. 66? Yeah. Were people, did you guys have an awareness of the AACM going over to Paris? Yeah, I, I did. Um, actually, when I got over to Paris in 69, mm -hmm. I met, them, but I met some of them, Roscoe and maybe Moyer yeah. and Malachi at my apartment because they came through New York right. to just to check on everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So when you were you're there and you're mm. at that apartment and mm. you're meeting Marion and these guys, did you feel like New York was going to be the place for you? Were, were you thinking of of going to Europe and? Well, the the first five years of my life was spent in Harlem. Oh, really? I was already a, a, a kid in Harlem, even though I was born at my grandmother's house in Middletown, Ohio. Uh -huh. My parents had moved in 1938. I, I came along in 1940, September 10th. Uh -huh. So... Um, I, I think if you spend the first couple of years of your life in New York City, hmm. even if you move to you know Montana, sure, something something gets wired very quickly. Yeah, yeah. The sounds, the smells, right, the, right. the everything. So they were already regulars at the Savoy Saturday yeah. night. Uh, lived uh, lived uh, a, a very very uh, colorful life, you know. In Harlem. And in Harlem. In Harlem yeah. at that time was really. Mm. It was pretty intense, the stories that they told me about what they were able to 
to do on the social side. How so? Uh, uh, well, my dad had a, a desk job at Shell Oil, mm-hmm. and he drove a 12-cylinder Packard convertible. Really? Uh, yeah. And um, finally, he started working as an administrator for the Urban League and got transferred to Cleveland, where he was doing his thesis on uh, uh, race relations as sociologist. And uh, <clears throat> he was at Western Reserve uh, University, and I was uh, in that new kindergarten program mm. when he received the Rosenwald uh, Grant Fellowship uh, along with Marion Anderson and James Weldon Johnson uh, to study in Honolulu. That's when we moved you, out there. And that's where you grew up. I grew up the second part of growing up, maybe you could in say. Hawaii. Uh, yeah, because I was 1946. They moved to a settlement right after World War II uh-huh. with all these international-type uh, scholars that were um, uh, exhausted from the war years. You, you get, Your family moved there in 1946. Exactly. Less than a year after the war ended. Or, the, well, I don't know but, uh, when but exactly. Uh, five years after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you could say. Yeah. yeah. Do you remember first or, or being five, six years old and arriving in Hawaii? I, I remember being six years old and <clears throat> having arrived on a freighter and uh, asking my dad if uh, I said, Daddy, can we stay here? And, yeah, because of the tingling sensation, the um, the um, the vibe was enchanting. Yeah, and I didn't have to wear shoes to school in second grade. Really? Yeah, they, I I was uh, in kindergarten in Cleveland, and then they put me in second grade right away when I got to Hawaii. And they had no requirement of shoes. Uh, no, not in second grade. <laughs> So I was I was pretty pretty happy about the whole had, thing. Had you been inside the ocean before that? Uh, probably not. Maybe in Lake Erie, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I I think like one of the only people I even know of who grew up in Hawaii would be President Obama. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and a lot of the the things um, that Obama described were happening way back in. Uh, uh, my years, because I went to a school that was near Punahou, which mm-hmm. was called University High School, and it was a teacher's college for the teachers-to-be uh, that were um, and at their teacher's college at the university, and it was part of the, uh, an extension of that campus. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there were at least three... Uh, student teachers in the room with one supervisor mm-hmm. and uh, all these kids from all over the world that were not at Obama school Punahou right. uh, but my big complaint was that that school didn't have a football team you or, wanted to play football I, I thought I did <laughs> you know but you know they would tease us that hey you guys don't have a football team you know you're not happening yeah and I thought well the, the, there's a swimming team surfboards <laughs> yeah you know swimming team so I joined that were there other African-American kids no I was the only one and uh, go for as, Harlem 
Did yeah, 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 right. Kid must so, have been a trip. Yeah, yeah. So when finally I stayed at that school and uh, made friends from every place, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I was on the track team too, and uh, it was a, a very uh, nerdy school back then, uh, as far as studying. And when I was old enough to drive, I would cut class and go out, sneak out to my car and go and visit my friends at other schools that had football teams. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) When you were, I mean, when you were a kid in Hawaii, Mm -hmm. the only African-American kid around, did you... Well, I guess I have a lot of questions about uh-huh, that, but yeah. did you, how, how did you access jazz being that far away? Uh, well, my parents brought their trunks of jazz records, and uh, I, uh, at Palama Settlement, that's where we were first yeah. uh, uh, situated, and um, what happened was all, uh, all of their friends loved jazz and they had Basie records and Ellington records all these 78s and I started to pull records out of the trunk because we're living out of trunks for maybe a couple of years you know and um, I remember pulling out a um, Lucky Thompson Cat on the Keys Mm. and uh, so this Lucky Thompson record became one that I copied right away just the the playing style, right? And then I had a uh, a trio in high school that played at the ca- canteens and proms, and I had two Hawaiian uh, musicians that I taught how to play the bass and the drums. They, they, and, uh, <laughs> uh, like you teach them how to walk a bass line, or yeah, I put chalk on the strings. He was actually a virtuoso trumpet player. Okay, so he caught on right away. But you, you really wanted to play with the rhythm section. I, I, I did because we were entering a contest where we, I think, we came in second place. Uh, <laughs> I played boogie woogie. Yeah, and uh, we, uh, we became kind of a little. Uh, uh, play at student proms and other kinds of events. Yeah? Yeah. You, you put together a whole set of, of music? Yeah. And and later on, I had a, a, a group with two electric guitars, and we copied Fats uh, Domino, and uh, uh, we had that kind of uh, group where I sang and both the lead guitar players sang. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so there were only two groups like that. One with my group was called the Quintones, and this other group that were all vocals, vocalists, uh, were called the Drifters. Yeah. And that was it. Uh, if you wanted to book some cool music for your prom, you would have either the Quintones or the Drifters or both. Yeah. And this would have been the mid 50s? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so when when I heard Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, I got very excited. Sure. And some of the stuff I just couldn't really copy that well. So it's a frustrated, leaning towards jazz person already. Yeah. And there was only one person to study with, and he was a friend of Miles Davis that had stayed after he got out of the Air Force at Hickam Air Force Base over there. And his name was Ernie Washington, and it's a friend of old man Joe Jones and uh-huh. so on. You know, What did Ernie Washington play? Piano. Piano. Yeah. So he became so, your teacher. Yeah. And mm. 
when you when you think about the lessons you took, or how, or how long were you well, with him? Um, I, I really don't remember, but off and on, um, I was I was studying with him. He gave me so much work that I could take it home mm. and and uh, and practice for a couple of months and uh, come back to him. And it was that kind of lazy, laid back situation. Um, I had Hawaiian a, a Hawaiian lethar, uh, lethargy, maybe, you know. It's, it's like in, that, right? In retrospect. It was at least mid-50s. You know? Yeah. But um, Ernie had his own nightclub, oh, uh, wow. and uh, everybody coming back from Japan would want to go by and sit in and play or you mean uh, like the musicians that were going mu- over the musicians tour. that were on coming on t- around so you saw you saw people play there uh, yeah and and all the time during this period like still today i'm sure the um the military bases were full of jazz musicians sure. or up and coming yeah, yeah, yeah you know or enthusiasts that wanted to uh, hang out at some place. Yeah. So it became Ernie Washington's uh, spot for hanging. I mean, I know during the war, for the people that were in Europe, not mm. in the South Pacific, mm. you know, the army band was a place where a lot of people really got their thing together. And, and historically, yeah. even during like Vietnam, that, that, was a, yeah. that was a bit of it. Yeah, well, the, um, the, uh, a friend of mine later, I'd come back after I left for the Coast Guard in 1960 uh, to Alameda, California. I would come back when I got to uh, Boston. Yeah. And I brought a group from from uh, from Berkeley, and we played uh, in Waikiki. Now that was the first uh, East Coast jazz. In, in Waikiki. Did it, did it uh, unsettle and, people? Yeah, yeah. And uh, it had not uh, changed yet. The military, when they'd go on leave, they would go to downtown um, Honolulu, but they wouldn't go to tourist uh, Waikiki until we were there. And it must have been 62. Um, and uh, uh, there was a soul food kitchen. So African American Marines and uh, Army Air Force, uh, along with <clears throat> the white uh, uh, officers and and enlisted men, were standing in line to come in to this place for the for the food for the food and the jazz. Yeah, you know, uh, we had limbo dancers, exotic dancers, um, in our show. This is a good night. <laughs> and yeah, and and sometimes they would say, "Okay, could you guys just play free now?" Um, uh, the limbo dancer would say, uh, "Just play free." Say, what, like what? He was from uh, West Indies, and he used to play with uh, uh, Red Fox. Mm-hmm. Uh, or he used to dance. No, excuse me. He used to dance with Red Fox. Somehow, he's a limbo dancer. But Red Fox, the comedian, the the, famously dirty, hilarious comedian. Famously dirty, exactly. So he was kind of a star already from L.A. (laughs) A lot of L.A. stuff was coming and going. It's only like a five-hour flight. You made me think of um, um, Lenny Bruce. I worked with him twice. Are you serious? No. Like you opened for him or you played with him while he was... I played with him. (sighs) Uh, 
and uh, got almost busted with him. This was twice. in Hawaii, or? yeah, in Hawaii, because he had dope. No, because uh, he was known for lewd and obscene Insanity. act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would you know? they would bust him after shows or during yeah, shows yeah, all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were waiting for him to do something that they considered to be uh, lewd or obscene. So, do you remember? Because he there was a, a a piece that he did very mm. famously. Yeah, where he would use the N word. Oh uh, yeah, and you'd use it just over and over again in a very mm. aggressive way to demonstrate how you can. Um, if, if you take the if you mm. take the power away from the word, you take away the person who uses it against you's power. Uh, yeah, maybe you take away the the hurt to the hurt, some yeah. some some uh, degree. But, but he didn't know, do I that never, in Hawaii, did he? I never heard that. Yeah, I, I heard maybe uh, the equivalent of that kind of uh, stuff. But uh, the the time that I was working with him, he had a um, a Kennedy wig. That he was going to put on, and he told me, you know, when I get to this part, I'm going to signal you, and I'm going to put on a Kennedy wig, and then you you start playing this other vamp. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a good gig, and I, I didn't know anything about why he was being busted. Right. Uh, but apparently he had been there before. And they were ready for him, and they were waiting yeah, for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was notorious. They, yeah, they yeah, couldn't yeah. wait to throw him in jail. But, um, you know, uh, but I, I learned a lot, and I learned a lot about him more because I was too engrossed in what I was doing to wonder what he was actually saying to the audience. Yeah. You know? But I think that, that, uh, that to give you an idea of the clique I was in was much bigger yeah. than me, and I, I told my my guys uh, that were at the other end of the strip from where we were, me and, and Lenny, um, I got to go back to school. Oh, but this almost the end of the summer, and they're going to build a Playboy club, and we can just continue, man. That's what can... Lenny was saying? No, no, this uh, the, the guys in my group. Yeah. And uh, I said, no, I got to learn more. I got to go back yeah. to school. And that's when you decided to go to Berkeley. No, no. I was there, I think, at least a year okay. already. I see. Yeah. I, I started Berkeley uh, fall of uh, 61. Fall in New England versus summer in Hawaii is quite oh, a yeah, different yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, real big hanging. Mm. Do you? What was Berkeley like at the time? It's it's kind of known to be one thing now, but you know, oh, yeah. fifty years uh, ago, uh, it was a, f a family. It was a small mm -hmm. school with uh, everybody was uh, uh, very uh, close to each other. Um, uh, friends from all over uh, the world, even uh, Sadao Watanabe was there. Really? Uh, Gary Burton was a senior, uh, so was uh, Quincy Jones, and uh, we were all in a dormitory. Not Quincy, but uh, uh, Gary was uh -huh. my first year and his last year, and uh, the seniors had of often had electric keyboards with earphones already. That was very advanced, so you could play after lights out in your yeah. in your dorm room, you know. But I was always down in the basement in the practice rooms with various groups that I was putting together. And I had, uh, well, for example, the kinds of things that we were most interested in then 
were uh, say the release to a night in Tunisia mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the head of uh, confirmation uh, of Charlie Parker's mm-hmm. uh, uh, classic or the train whistle voicing of uh, Duke Ellington mm-hmm. taught by Herb Pomeroy and a lot of the teachers were actually playing gigs at the uh, local clubs mm-hmm. and oftentimes to get in free because I say, oh, Herb Pomeroy told me to come in tonight. Yeah, yeah. I figured if I came in an hour early, I wouldn't have to pay. And he said, no, go ahead, sit in the front row, you can go. Oh, that's great, man. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you talk about <clears throat> being down in the basement and, mm-hmm. and looking at, you know, for example, Confirmation mm-hmm. by Bird, Mm-hmm. Were you just dissecting it and, and looking at it from all different angles? I mean, what what was that process of internalization like? Well, it was um, a steady. Uh, Ray Santisi, who passed away recently, mm-hmm. um, was the teacher of that course. And if he wrote a piece like Confirmation on the blackboard, we were supposed to copy it and uh, accurately mm-hmm. and then take it home and try to play it and we were some of us beginners and others were very advanced um, but what the essence of an exercise like that was was to see what notes were tensions and what notes in that melody line were chord tones mm-hmm. and uh, the tensions I was still learning about um, why would uh, on a C7 dominant seven, why were E flat and D flat significant? Well, it was sharp nine and flat nine. What is sharp nine and flat nine? Mm-hmm. So I would get uh, a, a, a nudge to go further to learn more about chord progressions mm. and why this one was sophisticated. Um, with Ellington, it was the same kind of big band uh, uh, orientation, maybe because um, there was an emphasis on big bands, and there was a recording band that Quincy Jones would take his charts down in the basement wow. to hear what he was doing right and what he didn't like. Uh, I finally uh, did a composition, uh, did an arrangement of... Uh, Um, uh, some uh, piece where I had the horns up too high and uh, they were straining to play Mm -hmm. and that's what this kind of workshop was for was to let you know uh, how your stuff sounded and what was wrong with it what was wrong with it but mm. so when you heard these horn players straining mm-hmm. you said oh that's that's not it or did you actually uh, hear something that maybe <laughs> uh, well uh, there was a certain part of that uh piece that was um uh, very very good sounding mm. um and 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 for a while you know you like they s- would tell you things like don't don't put the french horns up higher than f on sure. the treble clef yeah, basic right you know and, yeah. and and but if you were trying to outdo yourself and you didn't know better you know you would have a uh, a french horn straining right uh, and and uh, then then you started to understand that uh, 
this just doesn't work. And right. this other thing really works beautifully. Uh, stay away from that. That doesn't work. And, but what about... <clears throat> The social component of it, where you you're you're learning to put music together in such a way that you know is it's exciting to listen to, but so that it engages the musicians in such a way that they're excited to be there and that they're performing in a way that gives a lot to the music. Yes, well, the the freshmen were always catching a lot of uh, <clears throat> um, bullying yeah. and and razzing. Because you're expected to come in very green, a little afraid. And, you know, they know that it's the first time you ever wrote a chart. And and some of us were coloring our chart like a like a storybook right you know i had uh, green and red was it just to make them look pretty look make it look pretty and what someone took it and threw it right back yeah yeah and so they're passing out the parts you know and everything oh we're gonna have fun with this one oh god did they give it to you good yeah so sometimes you know uh, uh, but um Soon, soon you you found out that hey, you know, there's some aggressive cats. They, it shouldn't even be in school. You thought some of them they were so good. And yeah. I had a friend that was only there to solo, and he went with Basie later, uh, named Pete Minger, mm-hmm. and Pete was there only to solo. They nodded him. And uh, the recording band actually made records, and that was the ultimate to make a record while sure. you're still in school. You know? Yeah, still but he, he sounded like Clifford Brown already, really, as a as a student. But when you say that they had him just a solo, like yeah. they wouldn't even be critical of the way he would play the heads. Uh, no, uh, he <laughs> he might not even be on the <laughs> head. <laughs> you know, he'd just sit there until solo time, and then okay, Pete, take it away. Huh. Mm. And, and what do you think about that in hindsight? Uh, well, I, I thought it was good to be friends with Pete. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sure. he was he was in my band. We played after hours. But you on, made him play the heads. Uh, well, uh, there were already five trumpet players that so, were assigned okay. to that, and he was the solo guy. Yeah, uh, like maybe if they would have uh, Wes Montgomery in as a, a special guest. Sure. He'd just sit and, and solo, and people would whisper and say, uh, you know, Wes doesn't read music. And I'd say, wow, how does he know how to do all that? Wes didn't read music? Well, that, that's what they said at, wow. at, at that time. But I know what they meant. They meant that he was oh. only playing chords and could solo on chords. Don't put that music stand in front of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't necessary yeah. for him to... Uh, we had little uh, ensembles that played with people like uh, Wes that came through. And finally, I invited uh, um, uh, uh, Tommy Flanagan over. Yeah. And uh, the the big thing when somebody came over, some master came over, you would try to be right by his left hand so you could look and see everything. The left that, hand. Yeah. Did you get uh, to do that with McCoy? Uh, I I did also with McCoy. Um, we invited them yeah. to uh, the the quartet. No, only uh, I think the first time was McCoy and Elvin came. Okay, uh, but then the drum teacher Alan Dawson started having drum battles. He was famous for his battles. Uh, he was with um, 
uh, Brubeck at the time, off and on. Mm-hmm. And they just, we thought that was the ultimate. Just Brubeck. Leave. Yeah. I mean, the ultimate situation for Alan. Yeah. To be teaching at Berkeley and then running off to play with Brubeck and coming back to school the next day and would say, well, how was it? You, you guys know? be hanging on his every Yeah, word. yeah, yeah. And he'd sure. say, oh, it's great. It's really great. Okay. Um, uh, and all the drum students, including Tony Williams, would be sitting on the floor. And Tony was there at the same time Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he almost came to Hawaii with me, but he couldn't get a union card. So Steve Ellington came instead. Steve Ellington uh, played uh, uh, with Hampton Haas eventually. Oh and did you get, did you work with Tony at, at Berkeley? Uh, yeah, well, I didn't work with him. I I, I was uh, <clears throat> at jam sessions in my rooming house. Uh, I had a room. Yeah, and uh, Tony and. Sam Rivers would come and and jam with us. Oh my God. Uh, Sam Rivers was teaching me uh, things like uh, alternative chord progressions. Uh-huh. One Irving Berlin uh, classic, uh, How Deep Is the Ocean? Because he wanted me to accompany him in a certain way where he could uh, solo on these alternative chord- chords. You know, yeah, and Mike Knock was there, and Hal Galper was there. They were all uh, very advanced. Did you have to do? Was there any sort of um, <clears throat> coming from Hawaii mm-hmm. to? I mean, historically, I don't know what it was like then. Berkeley has been a very competitive school, yeah, and you're working with jazz, which has often had an aspect of competitiveness. And mm. did did you uh, were you ready for that being a kid from Hawaii? Or, well. Um, uh, yes and no. Um, I um, had these friends from New York, Massachusetts, uh, Jersey. Yeah, you know uh, that didn't didn't they didn't seem to care where I had come from. Mm-hmm. It was more about uh, if I could play. Um, for example, one. One kid was Mulatto Astaki, mm-hmm. who was from Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And I asked him at the coffee shop. We all had the same uh, uh, meal ticket. And, you know, you punched it every time you ate lunch. And I said, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Ethiopia. I said, uh, what are you here for? And he said, I want to play with um, Tito Pointe. Mm-hmm. And eventually he played Timbales with Tito. Uh, so we all had a sort of similar goal. Other guys I met, there was a saxophone player that had the trained sound named uh, Carducci. And Carducci was uh, a, a very, seemed to be younger than all of us and had a bigger sound. He was not that tall. <laughs> had this great big sound and sounded like Coltrane and said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to work in the studios. You know? Yeah. I said, Meet somebody else. He said, well, I'm from Canada. I want to play with uh, 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 one, of, one of the Canadian big bands. And, uh-huh. You know? And if someone asked you that question at the time, what would your answer uh, have been? I said, I would say I was going to New York and I really into... Um, um, Eric Dolphy and Mal Waldron and mm. and uh, <clears throat> uh, Richard Davis. Mm-hmm. And I got to meet um, 
Mal Waldron in Europe uh, when he was with uh, Steve Lacey. I was with uh, um, <clears throat> Sam Woodyard playing duets in a club in Maupinez in Paris for a whole summer. I mm -hmm. think that was summer of 79. Was Richard Davis doing Jazzmobile? Uh, yeah, and he was also... Uh, uh, all over. I, I was a co-leader of a group called the 360, and we had uh, um, a lot of different bass players mm -hmm. at times. At, at one point, there was uh, double bass with Ron Carter and and uh, uh, whoever else wanted to to merge with that. The you know the whole Ole concept of two basses. Yeah, and. Oftentimes, double drums. So, um, uh, oh, uh, a good example of what happened. Still, the new music, the new jazz, never had any kind of consistency in New York City. Hmm. Um, in the you know, in the in the uh, crossover, some some very say like Dolphy's group. Mm -hmm. It was a big thing for him to have two weeks at the at the five spot, mm -hmm. and then nothing. Maybe a European tour, but I see. you see, it yeah. was not where it was week after week after it's week. Kind of hard to get the momentum going yeah, when yeah. it's like that. Right, right, right. But do you feel? I mean, I'm in my 30s, mm. and I know the names, like sure. the big names, you know, yeah. the Dolphies and the the Eilers and the Sheps, and you know. Yeah. But. I have to imagine a lot of guys kind of got lost, you know? Well, that's what I remember when, uh, uh, say, a friend of mine, Stanley Cowell, first came, and he came over to my house on East 3rd Street mm -hmm. and said, how do you live? You know, there's obviously no work or not enough work, you know. Mm -hmm. How do you live? And we just said, well, you know, it's $40 to live here, and you know, we don't eat much. <laughs> but right. and we work when we work yeah so but uh, so it was very easy I later started teaching at Queens College at a program for African American and Puerto Rican uh, uh, students that wanted to have a jazz program and the Sikh program was uh, satisfying to some degree that kind of initiative yeah yeah, but do you think? Um, I mean, I, I don't want to go too far too far off topic, but mm. the fact that we're sitting here, mm. you know, fifty years after your first record, yeah, and you're still active as a performer, yeah. you're still active as a as a as an educator, and mm. and you're putting out records. I mean, that in a lot of ways is kind of <clears throat> an impossible feat. Even a lot of the greats, you know. You know, have 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 you know? I heard you know Max Roach was living in an assisted living facility when he passed away. Well, um, you know, when I met uh, Max on a personal level in uh, Gothenburg, Sweden, he had brought a, a group over. I think it was uh, Tyrone Brown on bass and uh, uh, Odin Pope on tenor sax, and uh, he said. When was when he was presented with a question about uh, what his next project was going to be, he turned to me 
I was living there at the time uh, with with a grant to have my jazz opera performed. Mm. I was getting the mistakes out of it. But he said, oh, this man is writing a jazz opera. If you want to make money, go into real estate. Otherwise, you can do what he's doing. I said, thanks, Max. Mm. So I think you could say that I've been and been lucky uh, to have the kinds of uh, opportunities. Um, people say, well, you went right to the heart of the uh, avant-garde. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know I was going right to the heart of the avant-garde. I just happened to be interested in playing free after I heard especially Cecil Taylor and Ornette, but I knew that that was at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. But I knew I had to learn more about the Ellington and yeah. the Coltrane, uh, early train and miles and so on. Yeah, mm. I've been listening to a lot of early train lately. Yeah, oh yeah, oh, it's all so the way satisfying. Follow, followed it all yeah. the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've... Uh, mm. <clears throat> so you, you leave Berkeley, you get to New York, uh-huh. Um, and you'd encounter the music of Cecil Taylor at Berkeley? Yeah, I heard <clears throat> It's a Lazy Afternoon yeah. um, when Shep was actually with with uh, <clears throat> with CT. And, uh, you know, I just played, performed at his funeral in, in, really? uh, in, in uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, on uh, Madison and 81st. Uh, yeah. I uh, played a composition by William Parker. You played solo? Uh, no, with three singers. Uh-huh. Uh, 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 and uh, what what the connection between me remembering It's a Lazy Afternoon by Cecil, I mean, his interpretation, was that he elongated the piece. And, you know, uh, that piece is usually sung. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lazy afternoon. And what he did was nonchalantly keep on um, explaining in a sort of sing-song humming way that theme. It's a lazy afternoon. And he decided to keep going. But us too. But it was an afterthought to continue to put the lyric in. It was only uh, an instrumental, you know. But everybody was swaying in the same rhythm and they had the same temperament and frame of mind Mm. and I thought well this is not the way that it's supposed to go it's deeper than the original Mm -hmm. it's it's an arrangement that I thought spontaneous and and even more meaningful and I don't think that it was an it was a written arrangement So I thought, well, I can do that too. And I think with uh, Patty Waters, she already had that kind of sensibility. She was doing uh, um, Happiness is Just a Thing Called Joe. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was an ESP tour around New York State. And uh, 
I was introduced to her through Marion, and uh, she would just linger on certain phrases that she thought important, um, even though the original didn't uh, uh, honor or or project in the same fashion, but you knew if she were singing My Funny Valentine, she might say My Funny, 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 Funny. You know, did, funny, did you take something from that? Did you feel like... Did you... I, I, I felt like, oh yeah, I heard Cecil do it, now I'm yeah. hearing Patty do it. I'm doing it with uh, Leonard Bernstein's uh, Maria, for example. I thought, well, what am I feeling now when I got to the end of my medley? Yeah. I thought, well, I'm feeling that the immers- the the... Uh, the the jubilance and the uh, the feeling of overall uh, uh, splendor that this boy had met the girl of his dreams mm-hmm. and what is he gonna do uh, I'm not gonna play bebop now right you know I'm going to spray this these colors of the feeling i just met a girl named maria yeah. and then he's saying it over and over maria 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 and 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 in my mind uh it was time to explode with color and yeah. energy you know give it give it all that i had yeah, yeah, yeah and and that's what and then i thought well how can somebody say that this is not improv improvisation it's completely improv yeah you know and and then i thought well maybe you know i have to uh, defend it in a certain way and then i thought no no i have to go all the way out with it the, you know the way sure. sonny murray would go out with it uh to the to the max. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. I mean, that's 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 one of those. It sounds like one of those things that it's like it's not just a music lesson. That's mm-hmm. a that's a life lesson that once you have that breakthrough, I mm. mean, you you you've got something. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and then then you knew you knew then that uh, you um, had something documented that you could be proud of. Uh, uh-huh. so oftentimes, you know, in, in the beginning of recording especially, you know, you think, oh, man, I should have waited to go in the studio and uh-huh. do this, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah. I-, I wish the first, at least the first record I made, I wish I could somehow recall every copy of it. Oh, sure. Even from people's homes. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that, that's part of the, the learning process right so the first mm. record you made was mm. was what was it uh high uh my my own uh record date was soon after the marion brown yeah. uh, uh marion brown's was called jubilee and mine was called high because um alan douglas said that's a word that never goes out of style huh. said and then he had my uh a, a photograph touched up and it was in a frame of piano keys flying through the sky mm. and uh everybody was saying ha 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 Dave Burrell High what Dave Burrell High School and I said no no Dave Burrell High School uh-huh they, people gave you grief they gave you uh, a hard time well that's some people everybody liked the cover you know yeah. I mean I could take a little little ribbing too you know? <laughs> then uh, Hank Mobley said to me you know said you're never gonna make any money unless you play solo and I thought 
that's funny, you know. Why would he say that? Now I know why. <laughs> you know. How old were you when Hank Mobley said that to you? Uh, this, uh, must, must have been the early 70s in, wow. in Paris. You know? Thanks, Hank. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Cecil did a lot of solo playing. Right, yeah. But I got to say, as a listener, more and more, as, you know, mm. as an improviser and also as a, you know, a... A listener of improvised music, I, I more and more. If I want, if I want to hear someone, I, I go to their solo records. You know. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, a, a lot of lot of times it's it's appropriate. I'll be at the Cafe Otto in in London yeah. in November, and uh, looking forward to that. You gonna play solo? Uh, yeah, yeah. I've done it at the Bim House in Amsterdam uh, rather frequently. Um, because I found out we were the one, of the, well, we were the very first group to play when, when Bim House was on the canal, mm. and and now it's it's uh, and it's part of the uh, government structure. You right, know? right, yeah. right. Did you? Um, how long were you in New York during that period of time? Uh, up until '85, I was in New York from. 65 to 85 solid 20 years of yeah and um during that time um almost for almost two years we had a residency in sweden uh Monty and i uh-huh. uh, uh my wife and main collaborator uh-huh. and she had uh, figured out a way to look at Windward Passage is the jazz opera we wrote together and take out the mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, things like the French horns up too high. Stuff. Um, and uh, <clears throat> But uh, what, what I'm driving at now is that we weren't in a, in a hurry to do anything uh, that we, we saw getting away and going to Sweden or going to Hawaii or going to Paris and living with friends mm-hmm. um, as as a way of expanding the New York base. Well, we had sublet and somebody didn't like that we had sublet for so long. You mean so, the landlord? Landlord, yeah. yeah. And we had to um, move and we moved to Philly where we had friends, but... <clears throat> I felt I needed to go back in the shed anyway, so it's going to just be in not so public, yeah, and be be more <laughs> private for a while. But right away, people started to uh, give you, give me th- opportunities. So you didn't really get the opportunity to go uh, in, not as as much as I thought. Yeah, but uh, you know, I had uh, lived in a carriage house in Southwest Philly, and I had a uh, a piano in there and. Every morning I was... Did you have... Um, was was Philly any part of your radar, even as a fan of jazz or as a as a practitioner? Was it a... Was there a connection there? Yeah, I, I knew people in New York who were from Philly a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, say Jerome Hunter was uh, playing with Shirley Scott at the time. I knew um, <clears throat> other people from Boston that were very high profile um and i come down with new yorkers to play at places like the aqua lounge and uh 
I was with Archie Shep a lot at the Empty Foxhall at University of Pennsylvania. But I got to the point where I was asked to be composer in residence at the Rosenbach Research Library. Mm-hmm. And um, the um, uh, it was a museum and library. It is a museum and library. And that's where I started uh, researching um, a lot of different topics, including Marianne Moore, mm-hmm. uh, the American uh, contemporary poet. Do you... The, 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 the practice of research, mm-hmm. which is a very specific thing, did you learn that from your dad? I think both parents, you know, they were both opera singers. And really? in, in Hawaii, they had a chance to do opera before, uh, because Hawaii never had any seg- segregation. Ever? No. Yeah. No. Um, it, 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 it's unique in that way yeah. uh, for African Americans, even in the military, to come and go as you please. So it's a lot of... Uh, of, uh, let's say, um, people who are friends that were of all different races and they get along fine, or they got along in the end of the 40s. And, um, the African Americans that were military that crossed over to to stay, for example, uh, the, uh, like Ernie Washington is a good example. You can have your own nightclub. Mm-hmm. You can have friends from all walks of life and all different backgrounds. And um, nobody was, even if, they, some people didn't like that you were having that freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the love and the uh, camaraderie between races was um, stronger yeah. than, than any kind of uh, opposition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I grew up, maybe, maybe that didn't continue Right. Uh, to the extent where I, I experienced it. But remember, I left in 1960 and went into the Coast Guard in California. Yeah. You see, so just around that time, a lot of my friends' younger uh, brothers were coming back from Vietnam very angry. Damaged and and yeah, yeah, and angry and damaged and uh, say, hey, isn't that your kid brother? Says, yeah, wow, you know, I don't remember him like that. Oh, he's been to Vietnam. Oh, okay. You know, yeah, and that was kind of the standard ax- ax- answer. I mean, I you know, mm. I, I talk to my mom about this sometimes, mm. and, and other friends and and people oh. that are you know in the same. My mom's seventy one. Mm. Just because, you know, things currently are so messed up. Oh, yeah. Just asking for a point of reference, you know, like in mm-hmm. the 60s, yeah, yeah. you know, when they were shooting the Kennedys and they were shooting mm-hmm. you know, Dr. King and, and the war in Vietnam was just, you know, getting worse and worse. Right. You know, it, it seems like despite <clears throat> advances that were made in the civil rights movement and advances that were made in the women's rights movement, <clears throat> things kind of began taking a very sinister turn towards... Uh, 
globalization and 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 making the way for people like Ronald Reagan. But when you think back on that period of time mm. and compare it to the general feeling right now, mm-hmm. does this feel familiar? Does it feel worse? Does it feel not as bad? Uh, <clears throat> the um, the feeling now is worse. Than, yeah. Than, than, yeah. Uh, in my uh, experience, never felt anything as uh, as far right as where the country is now. Yeah. Um, and uh, the um, the I think the morale, at least in in New York and Philadelphia, everybody that I uh, socialize with and 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 work with has the same kind of uh, feeling. Yeah, uh, it's a there's a deeper uh, despair. Yeah, in, in despair. the arts. Yeah, in the arts. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's it's hard to be optimistic. It's hard to, but you have to. Oh yeah. So um, the uh, the 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 international uh, mood is 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 very uh, much a reflection on uh, on on American. I think uh, uh-huh. on the American mood. Yeah. But uh, I I don't think that uh, the world has ever seen anything uh, culminate. Right. Uh, the, the the different uh, uh, catastrophes of immigration and and uh, the and and the kinds of uh, of uh, situations in in political systems that don't work anymore uh, around the globe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no matter where where you you look, you you see either it's uh, uh, complete uh, a, a complete breakdown in in uh, any kind of uh, uh, stability, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so so uh, with that in mind, you know, uh, it's sometimes it, it's 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 a vehicle for motivation, mm-hmm. uh, a wake up call, you might say. Uh, and at other times, it it can just uh, uh, stagnate the, yeah. uh, the 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 creative process. Yeah. Mm. And how are you? I mean, so you've got these concerts coming up at the Vision Festival. Yeah. Um, where they're honoring you. Yeah. Yeah. Lifetime achievement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well yeah. deserved. Uh, thank you. And what are, are you? Are you who? What concerts are you going to be presenting there? Uh, the first set. Is Renaissance uh, Ensemble for the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. And uh, I have uh, Darius Jones, Steve Swell, Darius on alto sax, Steve on trombone, and uh, um, the uh, uh, rhythm section, myself, uh, Andrew Cyril, and Harrison Bankhead. It's a cross-generational band. Right, and uh, we're playing uh, three compositions of mine. Well, the first one is uh, Paradox of Freedom, uh, and next is the uh, Red Summer March, which is uh, 
what initiated the uh, nationwide lynching uh, atrocities uh, in the United States, 1919, mm. and, and uh, this this march will feature Andrew Surreal. Um, the paradox of freedom will will feature both Steve and and uh, <clears throat> uh, Darius. And on the full blown rhapsody, the third piece, um, we celebrate the rhythm section in a way of honoring the dancers, uh, writers, and musicians of the Harlem Renaissance mm-hmm. that continued, uh, whether or not they were um, uh, as significantly uh, exploited. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a positive way mm. through the 60s, but through what you describe now as a, a very shocking uh, trend of assassinations. Mm-hmm. And if if it wasn't uh, uh, one kind of assassination, it was another kind of assassination of character yeah. uh, throughout the... Um, uh, uh, 1960s, I think, uh, you know, it's been revisited in a lot of different ways. Uh-huh. But uh, our thinking, Monica Larson, and my thinking is that it's a continuation through whatever happened uh, in each decade. It's significant to where we are today. Sure. Yeah, you know, it's all it's all very much connected, and yeah. it's a step by step. Do you um, have have you continued to work with with up and coming musicians like someone like? Yeah, I uh, really like uh, working with Brandon Lewis, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, the the kinds of uh, musicians that I work with internationally are people like uh, Silke Eberhard in Berlin mm-hmm. and uh, uh, she's an alto saxophone player uh, and an educator um, and in and, and, and Italy especially now uh, not only young folks uh, but even still in high school out of Sicilian uh, conservatories um, that are interested in, in improvisation Let's say, uh, even if they never improvised before without chords, they uh, went on a on a a journey with me. Let's call it uh, round midnight, mm. and I said, "Well, we don't have time to go into uh, the chord structure of this classic uh, ballad." but we have time to play the first motif. So let's just go and hold that note. And uh, let's put layers of sound and color. And when you need to breathe, take a quick breath and try to get some more whole notes and let me solo. Mm -hmm. And you'll listen and and you can turn corners with me and, and play what comes to your mind. And it turned out to be very, very understandable to the audience, which included maybe three or four generations of of of, uh, of fans. Yeah, hmm. 
it's nice when the audience understands it sometimes. Oh yeah, yeah, very, very. Uh, <laughs> it's really advanced, nice. Uh, advanced uh, collectives down there. Yeah, mm. yeah, but I mean that's like you know mm-hmm. that to me really feels like one form of of achievement and success is when you've communicated and had a shared experience. Oh yeah, you know, because yeah. you know with the audience it yeah. really is. Mm-hmm. They play a very important role. <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. So it made us feel very good, and 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 the the first timers were were hooked on it. Maybe they yeah. were not knowing what they were going to really end up doing. Right. But they came through this uh, this this experience uh, with a positive outlook. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's pretty spectacular. Yeah. And are you still recording a lot? Yeah, I am. I. Uh, I uh, just uh, finished with two veteran uh, Sicilian musicians, uh, a bass player and a drummer, uh, who are as interesting uh, in their concept. It's, uh, as you know, right across from uh, from uh, Africa. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's so many refugees flooding in, and uh, they're right on the cutting edge of free. Yeah. Uh, they've been doing it long before I, I met them, mm-hmm. but uh, excellent musicians. Yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciate you coming over and talking yeah. to me, Dave. Oh, it's, thanks for having it's me. It's really nice. Yeah. Nice to meet you. Oh, good to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That was Dave Burrell. You know, you want to know the truth? That conversation could have gone on much longer. Uh, we were having a good time. You know, unfortunately, he had to get uptown for another appointment. But um, I really enjoyed that a lot. So just a special and amazing person. And uh, check him out. You know, he's, 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 he's been at it for a long time. And, and you can hear it in his playing. Get down to the Vision Festival. Engage. Engage with the music. Engage with the audience. And, and, and take it in. Go to artsforart.org to find out more about the lineup, the the dates, the times, the venues. Check it out. Go to the 5049 website. Check out my new record, Decay of the Angel. Help me out. Get on there. Go to Kickstarter and throw in a few bucks. And and that's it. Um, We'll be back next week. And uh, until then, I hope you guys are all doing well. The weather's warm. Go out. Check out some music. Talk to you soon. Bye.